Welcome to the Self and Society podcast, exploring what it means to flourish as an individual and a community. This is your host, Ari Armstrong. Music by Jordan Smith, cjsclassical.com. Please subscribe via your podcast app, or better yet, join my email list at ariarmstrong.com. That's ariarmstrong.com. If you enjoy the show, please help to support it at ariarmstrong.com slash donate. Our guest today is James Valiant, author of Creating Christ, How Roman Emperors Invented Christianity. Thanks for being with us today, James. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> really a great, great pleasure and honor to be with you, sir. As listeners can tell, this is a provocative thesis in this book. Now, just to clarify for listeners, the idea is not that Constantine and then subsequent emperors solidified Christianity as the state religion of the Roman Empire. That did happen, and that's very important history. But that is not what this book is about, and not the thesis of this of this book. This book is even more <laughs> is more radical than that. Um, and and I'll just say up front, and and for listeners, James and I talked about this a little bit beforehand. I find a lot of fascinating history in this book, which is why I want to discuss it. However, I am not persuaded by some of the more radical theses of the book. So hopefully we'll have a chance to sort through what's the well-established, widely accepted history, what are the more controversial points, where do we maybe disagree or, or agree. So I think that with that, I think we'll uh, get going. I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> so the first question is, I am not familiar with your co-author, who was Warren Fahey, so it's a, co- it's a two-person authored book. And so I thought you could just tell us a bit, a bit about who is Fahey, how did you hook up with him, and what is the history of your writing and publication of the book? Well, Warren Fay is a New York Times bestselling novelist who's written several novels, uh, one of them uh, by Random House, another by Macmillan, been translated into at least 19 different languages, and so he's a brilliant, brilliant author. Is it historical fiction? What does he cover? He actually covers things like science, uh, philosophy, quite a range. He's a Renaissance man of various kinds, and I've known him since I was literally in elementary school. So when the thought, the light bulb came on in my head for the thesis of creating Christ, oh, I don't know, 1982, I got very excited. And because he was an old friend of mine, I came pounding on his window late at night, (laughs) rather rudely, wake up, wake up. And he was kind enough eventually to come to the door. This better be good. You've woken me up in the midst of the night. And so I started explaining my my theory and he became so fascinated by it. We were talking about it for the next, I don't know, 18 hours straight and then determined that we would continue this research. And so for the last 33 years or so, we have been, in each of us, doing intensive research on the entire subject of both uh, ancient history and uh, the earliest texts of Christianity, Judaism, as well as archaeological, numismatic evidence, the, really the entire range of evidence uh, interdiscipl- in an interdisciplinary way uh, on the entire subject. Um, and in, since the time that we came up with this thesis, several other scholars have come very close to saying what we've said. And so there appears to be an emerging school, an emerging consensus about, about this. Now, it's a minority school, to be sure. And as you point out, it's a very provocative thesis so far. Uh, but we are gaining remarkable adherence from various, uh, very disparate scholars uh, in the field, from Professor Robert Eisenman 
uh, to Dr. Robert Price. And you don't get more diverse than that in the world of biblical scholarship, and both have been completely converted by our thesis, which we find uh, quite astonishing and rewarding. But uh, it really was a labor of love for both of us for over 30 years. Wow. And so, and this was published uh, two or three years ago? Yes. First, we sort of came out with a beta version, if you will, uh, in audiobook and ebook editions. And that went so well, and the critical reaction went so well that the publisher insisted we come out with a hardcover and quality paperback, which is what we'd wanted to do eventually. Um, and that is going very, very well as well. So have you continued to, have you found any additional research since the publication date or anything that you would add or is there a blog or anything like that? Anymore? Oh, you know, having spoken to various scholars, there are various things that I now wish we had added because there's such powerful support for our thesis. Um, I was aware of it dimly, but I didn't quite realize the significance until speaking with these scholars to our work. So um, I have more, more to write uh, on the subject for sure. Well, and just so you and listeners know, I will do a page of show notes also. And so I'll link to the, the books we're discussing and, and other topics. And if you have anything in particular, any article you've read or anything, I'd be happy to drop that into the show notes so that people oh, thank can, you. can follow up. So you also, you're not just a, a, a scholarly type of writer. You're not, in the, you're not in academia, but you're doing scholarly type of work. But you used to be a prosecutor in California, right? Yeah, for about 18 years, I was a public prosecutor, a deputy district attorney in San Diego County. I did dozens and dozens of murder cases, rape cases, child molest cases, did appellate work. Uh, so basically, I'm a, a lawyer by training, but all of that forensic training and training and investigation uh, proved essential to my work uh, on creating Christ, which has been going on as long as I've been a lawyer as well. Um, I also have a background in this a little bit. I have a degree in philosophy and history from New York University. Okay. Do you still practice law at all, or is that in the past? No. Uh, the work in law that I really loved was trial work, being in court. And uh, <laughs> the other aspects of law were not nearly so appealing to me. So a few years back, I had some health issues and sort of had to confront that I couldn't maintain the high stress work and still maintain my health simultaneously. So it kind of broke my heart because I loved that work very, very much, but I, but I had to leave it. But the upside is it gave me the time to devote myself to this other passion of mine, a lifelong passion of mine, uh, ancient history. Well, I'm glad that the uh, turn worked out relatively well then. I wanted to go on a slight tangent here because it's relevant to both of our backgrounds. Uh, which is that I, I got to know your work first through your previous book, which is The Passion of Ayn Rand's Critics, which is a sustained critique of the biographical work of Nathaniel and Barbara Brandon, who were early biographers. If you can, I'll put an asterisk by that word, but they wrote about Ayn Rand's life. And from, from Ayn Rand's perspective, this was unfortunate because they had a major blow up in their relationship. And so to have the people who you have a, this serious schism with, then write your first biographies. It's kind of unfortunate for Rand. But nevertheless, we. Um, so that's how I first was introduced to your work. But it's relevant here because Ayn Rand is one of the most important atheist thinkers. She's not fundamentally atheist, but she is atheist in the implications of her ideas of the 20th century. 
So I was curious. So I, I was born into a religious family. So I grew up religious, deeply Protestant. And then partly because of Ayn Rand, I slowly converted into atheism. And I was wondering, did you grow up in a religious household or was, was your household non-religious or how did that work for well, you? Well, like you, I was brought up in a Protestant church, but my parents, <laughs> I'd have to describe my parents as not particularly religious uh, at all. I think that the reason why they took their children, including myself, to church and Sunday school, and a, it was a mainline Protestant church they took us to, was basically for the moral education. I don't think they were aware that there was any other place that their children would actually learn right, right from wrong. And in that state of moral ignorance, they took their children to, to church with the thought of, of teaching them that. Um, so I became more religious, I think, than my parents did as a small child. If this was important, if this was philosophical, I was going to learn the truth. And so I studied as a very young person uh, extensively Christianity and its theological and historical bases. And uh, however, early in my teens, I did become an atheist somewhat overnight, even before discovering the work of Ayn Rand. And, um, <laughs> but the discovery of Ayn Rand's work was absolutely critical to my ability to see through uh, to the correct origins of uh, Christianity. I believe that it is the false moral idealism of Christianity that has mostly blinded people to evidence under their nose uh, indicating the true origin of Christianity. And so long as they continue to think of Jesus' altruism as some sort of otherworldly idealism, um, I think that'll persist. And part of the purpose, uh, and I think the importance of my work, is to strip that mask of moral idealism straight off of uh, Christianity to expose it for what it really was uh, when it first came, came about. Uh, but I could never have seen it but for Ayn Rand's insight. If I hadn't had, and I'll, I'll add here too, another philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche. I disagree, like Ayn Rand, with most of his basic philosophy. In fact, nearly everything about his metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, politics, where there is politics in Nietzsche, I disagree with. Uh, however, his criticism of Christianity was powerfully insightful and had a dramatic impact on my understanding of Christianity, just as much as Ayn Rand's powerful critique of altruism did. I no longer saw Jesus' idealism as moral idealism, but like Ayn Rand, I, I realized that altruism always has an earthly motive. That's power here on earth. Ayn Rand had argued, of course, that uh, altruism there's no good reason for altruism, as she famously said, and that's why it always has a mystical base and always been given a mystical base. There's no earthly reason for altruism, she said, and none has ever been given. So what's its real motive? And, and, Ayn, Rand, so and Ayn Rand said very clearly, it's power, political power here on earth that motivates altruism. And uh, she would usually cite Stalin, Hitler, even the welfare state in the United States as her examples. But I wanted to test the prop her proposition at a much earlier stage. Is this true of Christian altruism? And it turned out that Ayn Rand vindicated Ayn Rand in a very unexpected way. She was absolutely correct. Politics was behind the intense altruism of the New Testament. And I want to point out for listeners' benefit that when Ayn Rand uses the term altruism, she means it in a very specific and more historical way. It doesn't mean being nice to other people, um, being kind, that kind of thing. What it means is self-sacrifice for the sake of others. So it's the sacrificial part 
that Rand is against and that is significant to her use of the term. Precisely. So the, it's, it's the notion of self true self-sacrifice, <laughs> true self-immolation for, for, for some great, allegedly greater cause, as opposed to the genuine benevolence between human beings, which Ayn Rand saw as a perfectly selfish thing. And just for the record, I do have a critique out of Rand's ethics, um, but I still agree. I st I st I'm still inspired by Rand in many ways, and I still agree with much of her thought in ethics too. Uh, now, one you mentioned Nietzsche. I was interested near the end of your book. You talk about a German philosopher. I think his name is Bauer. Yeah, Bruno Bauer. And I was wondering if you might, might want to say a couple of words about who he was and what his influence was on Nietzsche in terms of his views of Christianity. Well, Nietzsche had a huge impact, obviously, on atheist thought and, in, and what people don't realize, even on Christian scholarship. Uh, Bruno Bauer was a student at the University of Hegel, no less, and a friend of Hegel's. And he, in turn, was a teacher of both Frederick Nietzsche and Karl Marx. Uh, interestingly, Bruno Bauer himself, his most famous work, Caesar and Christ, is really the, one of the first uh, instances of scholars questioning whether there was a historical Jesus at all. But he was really the first person to approach this topic of was New Testament Christianity uh, something of Roman provenance. And he basically saw the, the Roman Hellenistic basis, the pro-Roman basis of Christianity with great clarity. Now, unfortunately, he was a terrible, vicious anti-Semite as well. And I think that has colored the way people have looked at his scholarship and dismissed some of its uh, insights. Um, he was a nasty anti-Semite, unlike his student Nietzsche, by the way. Uh, but Bruno Bauer himself uh, had famous debates with the leading biblical scholars of his own time, such as Strauss, um, and later scholars such as Albert Schweitzer at the turn of the 20th century praised his work in biblical scholarship even above that of people like Strauss and the mainline biblical critics. Uh, historians, I think, are now coming back around to appreciating the work of Bruno Bauer, and they're able to separate out his vicious, unjustified views from his uh, powerful historical insights. I think you mentioned that his works are not in print. Are they available online? or? Well, I, mean, I think you know? now, in just the last couple of years, a decent uh, translation has been uh, done. When we finished our manuscript originally, I was unaware that in the last couple of years, a, a decent translation from the German into the English has finally been done. And can you imagine? It's been about 150 years since this important work on Christian scholarship and the origins of Christianity has been unavailable to international scholars in English and other languages. So it was very important to get a good German translation of it. And apparently it is available now at Amazon and online. Well, let's make sure I drop that into the page, into the show notes too, because okay, that's, that's an interesting source that I had not heard of before. And, uh, you know, it sounds like something that some people might want to follow up on. So going back to Rand, just for a moment, before we move on into the meat of your book, what my thought is simply that a lot of today's atheists don't pay Rand any mind because they disagree with her ethics and her politics, even though they're dismissing what I, you know, she's one of the major atheistic thinkers of the century, as I mentioned. So do you agree with that assessment or what do you think is going on there? I think you're exactly correct. I think it is. Well, conservatives obviously don't like her for her atheism and liberals don't like her for her defense of consistent capitalism. But the one thing they all agree on is that her advocacy of ethical egoism is intolerable. 
And because she uses the word selfishness, again, like altruism, not in its traditional sense. By, what, by selfish behavior, she means something radically different than what most people mean when they use the word casually, selfishness. And uh, so again, she's using both words in sort of a specialized way, trying to reclaim, for example, the word selfishness uh, in, its, in a benevolent um, you know, sense. But I agree, that is the main source of the problem. On the other hand, the new atheists have a giant lacuna in their own thinking, ethics, establishing a decent ethics. And until they can do that, uh, and Dawkins and Harris are lead examples in this, and their determinism, of course, only you know, precludes them from even getting a decent ethics off the ground. But d- the development of a secular ethics is precisely what the new atheists need and precisely what Ayn Rand was so outstanding in providing a secular objective ethics. And I know you have uh, qualified disagreements with her, but it is that work of creating an objective secular ethics that is absolutely essential to taking down uh, mysticism and religion in general. You know, long after philosophers have disproved the need for any uh, God, I mean, since the time of David Hume and the Enlightenment, and long after German scholars have shown that the New Testament is historically unreliable, Christianity still persists. And I think it goes back to why my parents took me to church, the need for ethics. And what Ayn Rand does is is she actually attempts to provide an objective secular ethics. And it's that work that I think will finally bring an end, uh, if there is to be a future civilization, to religion. Um, So uh, it's astonishing to me that, that the new atheists ignore her for other reasons, generally without understanding her. What Creating Christ does is it takes it a step further, and it says the moral idealism of Christianity itself is fraudulent, is bogus, and not to be trusted. I do know that two of the so-called four horsemen, Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris, have had a few quite negative things to say about Ayn Rand. Oh, yeah. And and I don't think either of their sets of comments are warranted. I think that they're both unfair. Agreed. And as far as I know, Richard Dawkins basic and uh, Dan Dennett basically ignore Ayn Rand. So that's where they, that's where they stand. Right. Some of the best atheist thinkers, and mind you, I find value in some of their work. Um, there's no question uh, that Dawkins' understanding of evolution and much of what Sam Harris does, even though he's on a materialistic basis, is I think very useful. It's just their blindness to the need for an objective ethics that's more than just a question of you feel what's right and wrong in your heart, basically, uh, that is their major uh, lack. Right, and I saw that uh, Dawkins is actually coming out with a new pro-atheism book, I think later this fall. So, Right, we'll I've heard that, that too, yeah. We'll see how that turns out. Yeah. Oh, and one more just sideline note. I guess you recently went to the Objectivist Summer Conference, the one associated with the Ayn Rand Institute? I did. I went to the Objectivist Conference this year. I was fortunate enough to be invited. They wanted to hear about the thesis of Creating Christ and its relevance to the work of Ayn Rand. And, you know, for a secular audience like that, which you, the first thing you have to do is convince them why they should even care. Because if you're already convinced that Jesus is a myth and there is no God or supernatural, uh, why on earth should I care about an, a, an ancient story that's obviously a myth, right? Uh, but that ancient myth still governs the world today. You hear Nancy Pelosi and Mayor, Poo, uh, Mayor Pete trying to one-up their Christian credentials on traditionally religious conservatives. Hey, 
with our welfare policies and our pacifist foreign policy, we're far more in line with the New Testament than you so-called traditional religious conservatives. And so right and left are sort of vying for the moral high ground, and that moral high ground is still Christian values. Even some of the most secular leftists, like Marxists, are still assuming, in effect, the values of Christianity without questioning them. So whether we like it or not, the moral idealism, as I say, of Christianity still basically defines the moral high ground of our time. And that moral high ground, let me suggest, has far more impact on public policy than any technical argument from some economist or from some legal scholar. It's that moral high ground that is the ultimate uh, determiner, I think, of public policy and the way people live their lives. Yeah, I'm absolutely convinced that to understand the modern world, we need to understand the history of the Roman Empire and the Christian religion, which is one reason why I've started to do more of that sort of research and one reason why I find your book so interesting. And one reason I find you interesting. (laughs) uh, Do you know if uh, the Ayn Rand Institute is going to release that lecture or set of lectures on YouTube? I do not know. It, we, they did not live stream it at the time, but they did make a high quality audio and video recording. I'm hoping to be able to use it myself for my own purposes if they don't at some point. But they were kind enough to give me a wonderful reception there. It was a very, very exciting uh, experience for me. And intellectuals that I've admired for decades came up to me and complimented me in the most profound ways. Um, it was standing room only. Uh, the, I had to cut off the questions. I got standing ovations, so I can only thank the objectivist community for giving me such a fair and, uh, in fact, wonderful hearing. Well, I'm sorry I missed it. I hope I get to see it online sometime. Is it like an hour or is it a multi-hour presentation? It's about an hour presentation. Okay. So let's start to dig in to some of the meat of the book. So, and we're going to start with the more widely accepted, less controversial points, and then move slowly to the yeah. more controversial points. That's a good, that's a good approach, because that's basically how I approached it myself. I had to figure out what the standard views were about everything. You know, I've got to read a thousand books before you can open your mouth on this subject. And I had to figure out what the standard scholarly views are and why they are that. And that is precisely what led me to uh, my conviction that I'm dead right. <laughs> Well, because the way I look at it, there's sort of a weaker thesis, which is that Christianity was profoundly influenced by the Roman Empire. And I think that thesis is demonstrably true, like overwhelming evidence to show that that's true. If you just read the New Testament, that's, you mean you know in a, that you mean in a cultural and philosophical sense, that's been well established. Right. That really has in recent decades that I think has been pretty conclusively established. There's no way you can read the New Testament without reading Plato and Stoicism. You know, uh, Greco-Roman philosophy is all just dripping all over the New Testament in a way that you wouldn't find normally with contemporary Jewish writers. So it's some of your more precise ideas that are more controversial. But let's start with some of the basics. So to me, the most important thing to understand reading your book about Christianity is that it arose in a period of intense strife between Judaism and Jerusalem and the Roman Empire. So I was hoping you could spend a few minutes to put that, to set the context for us. Oh yeah, that, that is the critical context that sets the entire um, framework for what we're about to discuss. 
people don't really realize the connection. But in the first century uh, of the Common Era, uh, there was a cataclysmic, religiously-based conflict between monotheistic Jews and the Roman Empire as such. The typical Roman policy of integrating the religions and the cultures of the people they conquered into their own was one of the great ways in which Rome achieved such uh, enduring stability. They had a multinational empire that lasted for many centuries, unlike most of the empires of the ancient world. And the reason for that endurance and success is because the Romans followed a policy of tolerance, more than tolerance, an active integration of the foreign cultures that they came into contact with. The most famous example, perhaps, being the ancient Greeks, whose deities they just sort of adopted almost one for one uh, with their own, and and identified one for one with their own deities, using a foreign religion to help justify their own political legitimacy. Um, A great example of that is the first emperor, Augustus. And the poet that worked for him, Virgil, wrote this book, The Aeneid, based directly on Homeric works. He takes a a hero from the Iliad, perhaps the oldest instance of uh, Greek literature, Aeneas, and uh, he uses the form of uh, Homer's Odyssey to describe this epic journey that, uh, basically copying Homer, you see, uh, this epic journey of this Greek hero to Italy, and uh, very much a la Odysseus's journey. But Aeneas lands in Italy, becomes a king, and becomes the legendary ancestor of, well, Augustus, the emperor, the first Roman emperor, and the guy that Virgil happens to be working for. So while the Aeneid is perhaps the greatest Latin poem that ever existed, and great art on its own, it's also both political and religious propaganda. And you can see both of those forces uh, working throughout the uh, Aeneid, uh, when, when Virgil waxes poetic about the glory of the Caesars and their descent from Aeneas and the, and the Greek goddess Aphrodite, who was, became the Roman goddess Venus. But you can see the Romans doing this with various other cultures. Roman, uh, first century Roman coins will show an emperor on one side and the Egyptian god Serapis on the other, or Isis and Serapis on the other. Uh, they did the same with uh, religions from Phrygia, which is today, or Lydia, which is today in Turkey. Or they did it with gods from Syria. They did it, in fact, they did it with foreign gods as far away as Parthia. Mithra, Mithras became a Roman deity, too. So what we have is a, a Roman penchant for adopting and absorbing foreign religions, making them their own to help the legitimacy of the emperors who have just conquered these foreign people utilizing those foreign religions to help the legitimacy of the conquered peoples. Now, in the case of the Jews, this was uh, a policy they could not easily follow. Jewish monotheism made it impossible for Jews to sort of cross-identify that deity with the pantheon of Roman polytheistic deities. And Jewish monotheism by that point had reached such a a level of sectarian intensity that any idol worship, any visual representations of the divine were considered uh, a deep sin, as you read in the Ten Commandments back in Jewish Mosaic law. There and even be... foreigners in the religious sites, right? Absolutely. In fact, when you would go to do uh, animal sacrifices at the Jewish temple, you couldn't use pagan money, which typically had Roman emperor's images or, or pagan god images on them. And so the coin itself was considered pollution. So at the temple, you'd have to exchange the foreign money 
for pure Jewish money just so that you could purchase, say, the Passover lamb that you'd need to sacrifice uh, at Passover. Hence um, the money changers. Hence the money changers. And uh, uh, so so strict was this uh, Jewish sectarian view that they... Remember, there was no separation at this time between religion and politics at all. And so uh, very much like today's Muslims believe that Sharia should be the actual governing law of the land, so Jews in the first century believed that the Mosaic law must be the governing law of their own people. And that was, for most Jews of the time, uh, impossible within the context of uh, being obedient to Roman law and subject to Roman law. The very Roman presence there was pollution, as far as many uh, Hebrews were concerned in the first century. They also had, of course, in Hebrew literature, uh, uh, prophecies uh, about a coming deliverer and a messiah. And in their history, they'd had many messiahs. Only they were all earthly messiahs who'd led the Jews to political victory over their opponents. And because of Jewish monotheism, none of these messiahs was or could be a god or a godman. That is obviously offensive on the face of it to Jewish monotheism. Um, so Jesus represents in the New Testament a radical change uh, from that attitude. Nonetheless, it was these messiahs who claimed to be who were the rebel leaders of this religious war between the Ro- Romans and the Jews. This religious war went on throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, there were violent disturbances in Alexandria, Egypt, for example, between Jews and Gentiles, which got the uh, attention of the Emperor Caligula as early as around the year of 39 or 40 of the Common Era. And uh, shortly after that, uh, about a decade or so after that, the Emperor Claudius had to expel all the Jews from the city of Rome because of messianic disturbances there. Uh, I didn't realize what fraction of the population of the Roman Empire Jews constituted. I was just not aware of that. And you say at least 10 percent. Oh, no, no, no. The standard view is at least 10%. Some scholars say as much as 15%. Now compare that to the Jewish population of the United States today, right? We have uh, just a small percent, single digit percentage of Jews in the United States. Uh, The African American population in the United States is what, 11 or 12%. So to have between 15 or 20% of the Roman Empire's population and spread throughout the Roman Empire being uh, Jewish it represented a this rebellion, this cultural, political, religious rebellion constituted a major crisis for the Roman Empire. They were also very close to Egypt, which was the economic breadbasket of the Roman world. Any political threat there would have been uh, <laughs> the most serious political threat that the empire could possibly face. By the year 66, uh, open rebellion broke out in Judea, and the Romans had to send three legions and consider that's a huge percentage of their army and considerable auxiliaries to fight a multi year war in which perhaps maybe a million people were slaughtered and thousands upon thousands of messianic claimants, uh, Orthodox Jewish messianic claimants who didn't claim to be man gods but rebel leaders were crucified. This temp- and many more, you say, were <laughs> taken into Roman slavery. Indeed, even hundreds, at least hundreds of thousands of Roman slaves uh, were the, that's what happens with a Roman war, right? Those who don't get killed are mostly enslaved. And uh, these Jewish slaves came back to Rome and built things like the Colosseum, 
I mean, the, the, the original uh, inscription above the door to the Colosseum is built with the booty of the, from the Jewish war. And wow. yeah, so uh, uh, it was Jewish slaves who built the Colosseum, and it was Jewish slaves who were thrown to the lions initially in that Colosseum uh, for being political rebels. And so the, this Jewish war has a cataclysmic effect. It reduced the Jewish temple to the Wailing Wall that it is today. And the story didn't even end there. Sixty years later, another messianic, religiously inspired war between Jews and Romans occurred uh, around the year 130 or so AD uh, between Romans and Jews. And what's interesting is, of course, is that nearly all of the New Testament, uh, by scholarly consensus, was composed between those two Jewish wars. Right. I was recently reading the blog of Bart Ehrman, the great biblical scholar. Oh, the leading biblical scholar of our time. And he was saying that he used to think the Gospel of Mark was written maybe 68, 69, I believe that's what he said. Right. Common era. And then he's more recently come to think that it was written, I I think he said 72, 73. Yeah, he's he's, he's found better sense there. A lot of scholars, in fact, I would say it the consensus of scholars realize that the material in the Gospels describes the Jewish war and describes the events of 70 AD so well in such detail that they, it really could not be plausibly written before those events took place. The first century Jewish historian, Flavius Josephus, tells us many specific details which are echoed in, in Jesus' alleged prophecy of that event. Uh, for example, that armies would be seen in the clouds and so forth, that they'd be false messiahs who would lead people astray, these rebel leaders. And there are a number of other little details. You know, the temple would be so destroyed that not one stone would be left on another. Uh, th- this level of detail suggests to most scholars that uh, the first gospel, Mark, was written shortly after the Jewish war. See, it had to be aware of those events, but it couldn't be too far from those events since those events were clearly the obsessive interest of the writer of Mark. So I want to circle back around in a little bit to the men who led the Roman troops against the Jewish people and who destroyed the, who destroyed the temple, because that's very important to your book. Yes. But first, I want to go to the more general point that Christianity, just based on the New Testament, so I, recently I reread some of Paul's early letters, and the Gospel of Mark, that Christianity is profoundly pro-Roman in certain ways. It is profoundly. Well, what anti- way isn't it? What way isn't it pro-Roman? I would ask. <laughs> well, it's not. But, not every line is about the Roman Empire, but where it. Well, in a way, it, it is positive. In a way, it is. Um, but it's every also, line. I, I, I would suggest to you, uh, Ari, that every single line of the New Testament, with the possible exception of the letter of James, which we can talk about which I think was a Jewish militant document. But apart from that, I would say every line feeds into the same overall purpose of reshaping the theology and politics of Jewish messianic belief into something pro-Roman, to assimilate Jews into the Roman world and to defang all the political ambitions of the concept Messiah. And so it's sort of an odd thing because it's coming out of Judaism and out of the Judaic tradition, and yet it is radically rebelling against this traditional or law-bound Judaism that was prevalent among, at the time. Precisely. And it In was fact, also, it goes further yeah. than that. It radically changes the, the entire conception of Messiah. 
instead of being a political leader or a orthodox religious leader, he turns into a critic of orthodox Judaism and an advocate of peace who says that his kingdom is not of this earth. With a little assist from Plato, he removes the political ambitions of the Jews and their Messiah to another dimension altogether. Um, and this idea, this, uh, this idea that Christianity upended the Judaic conception of the Messiah, that's very established and standard Christian theology. I'm wondering if you would want to say a word about Paul, the Apostle Paul's war with the law-bound Jewish Christians over whether Christians had to follow the law, because that's also an important piece of the puzzle. Absolutely critical. Obviously, one of the principal motivations for the entire religious war that the Jews were fighting against the Romans was their belief in the Mosaic law. Being uh, Torah Orthodox and a strict believer in such things as kosher diet, uh, circumcision, uh, strict Sabbath observance, all the distinctive features of what we identify as Judaism, right? The adherence to that Mosaic law was obviously uh, the motivation uh, for uh, Orthodox Jews to rebel against Rome, along with these Messianic prophecies. And so to turn the Messiah into an unearthly man-god is a profoundly paganizing thing, and that's what Paul is doing. He's saying, one, circumcision and kosher diet do not matter, Since the death and resurrection of Christ, Christians are, quote, freed from the law, or at least certain aspects of the Mosaic law, and that is one of his major arguments. In genuine Pauline epistles, such as his letter to the Galatians, Paul goes so far as to say that in Christ there is no Jew, there is no Greek, there is no male or female. So what he is saying is that this new message is open to everybody whether or not they had previously been uh, by birth a Jew, or whether or not they adhered to the Mosaic Law, which were basically, you had to follow one of those two conditions to be a Jew. And if you're not following the Mosaic Law or having been born a Jew, in what sense are you a Jew? Paul opens the gate wide open and says that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, no slave nor free. So uh, Christianity is literally open to everyone in a way that Judaism had never been open before. And he's shattering basically simultaneously, all at once in a sweeping fashion, every distinctive feature of uh, the Mosaic law off the map. Now, on the other hand, as you observe, it's clearly still an ode to the Jewish God and only addressed to those who are interested in worshiping the Jewish God. So it was addressed to a very targeted audience And uh, it was not, in fact, originally intended for a general Roman audience, but simply to pacify and culturally assimilate these Jewish rebels. It's clear to me that Paul, take another one of Paul's earliest letters, his letters to the Romans. Uh, In Romans 13, he speaks point blank about the need to obey the Roman government. We must obey the government as God's appointed agents on earth. Rebellion is not just a bad idea, it's a sin. Paying your taxes is religiously obligatory. Uh, Now, you may recognize this doctrine. It's the divine right of kings, right? Christian kings for the next 2,000 years were saying, yeah, you have to obey the state as God's chosen appointees on earth. Uh, Les tassez moi, said Louis XIV, because I'm God's appointed agent on earth and therefore an absolute monarch. Ironically, obviously, the, the founding fathers had much the worst biblical argument to the Tories, uh, who were absolutely right. Look at the founding fathers of America. Whatever conservatives may think, 
the founding fathers did everything practically you can imagine that was in direct opposition to what Paul and Jesus stood for. A tax rebellion? They didn't turn the other cheek. They didn't obey the state as God's chosen opponents. Um, And George III was a pussycat compared to Roman emperors of the first century like Caligula and Nero. So the the founding fathers of America were anti-Christian if the New Testament is our standard. And as you point out, there are numerous passages in the New Testament exhorting Christian slaves to obey their masters and that being God's will for them to do so. Ironically, the Messiah, extraordinary extraordinary paradox indeed, and this touches on a wider paradox that I think is really hard to reconcile with any other theory but my own. Jesus is supposed to be the Messiah, the king the earthly leader who saves the Jewish nation from its foreign oppressors. Instead, he himself models slave behavior by washing the feet of the disciples to their shock and amazement because they're expecting this earthly Messiah like all other Jews of the first century were. But Jesus makes clear to them that the first in this world or the last in this world should be the first in the next. So on four different occasions, slaves are exhorted, commanded, to obey their earthly masters, even harsh masters, because it provides an excellent salvation opportunity. If you're really abused and persecuted and and obedient here in this finite life on earth, you'll be numero uno and get great rewards in the next life. Um, So it, it talks about sacrificing this life pretty much in a thoroughly altruistic way for the sake of the next, but it's pro slavery. Jesus befriends tax collectors. He not only says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar, and that and to God that which is God's, which of course is a direct answer to the Jewish rebels, right? Who believe you can't do both at the same time. That your obligations to Caesar come in conflict with your obligations to the Jewish God. Jesus directly argues against the Jewish rebels and saying, no, no, the needs of Caesar and the needs of God are perfectly consistent, render unto both. But he goes further than that. He, one of his disciples, Matthew, is a tax collector. He befriends and defends tax collectors who are hated by contemporary Jews as Roman agents. He goes further. He he not only praises Romans, he praises a Roman centurion as having more faith than any contemporary Jew. Period. That would be, let's say, a, a, a Muslim leader today said an American GI in Afghanistan had more faith than any Muslim. It's the equivalent. So clear, Jesus is clearly offering political propaganda left and right. His, his apocalyptic prophecy of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which is a post-event quote prophecy, it can only be seen as a retroactive dire warning against rebellion. And that can be seen in many, many, many other places. Uh, Jesus is saying, do not fight the Jewish rebellion, you will lose. Whoever picks up the sword shall die by the sword. Well, that's just factually inaccurate. Lots of people who use weapons or initiate force die of natural causes. But in the first century, it makes perfect sense as another dire warning against rebellion. I find that perfectly convincing. I want to hit one more point on this topic before moving on, Mm -hmm. which is, as you point out in the book, and if you just read the Gospel of Mark, is very obvious. The Gospel blames the Jewish religious leaders not the Romans, it actually largely excuses the Romans for Jesus' death. And any any fair reading of Mark, you cannot come up to any other conclusion than that. Any fair reading of all four Gospels, 
and each of the four Gospels gets prog progressively more anti-Semitic. In fact, the passion narrative of all four Gospels are consistent in this basic one way. They totally exonerate the Romans of any blame whatever, and all groups of Jews, not just Jewish leadership. For example, uh, Judas, one of Jesus' own disciples, betrays him. This Judas happens to have a surname, Iscariot, which many scholars believe identifies him as one of these Jewish rebels who are the Sicarii movement. So Judas the Sicarii, a, re a political rebe rebel, disappointed that Jesus is not an earthly political rebel, betrays Jesus and turns him into the Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrin. Now throughout the Gospels, Jesus is having these debates uh, with Jewish authorities about uh, the Mosaic law. For example, Jesus attacks kosher diet, Jesus defends his disciples for working on the Sabbath, and Jewish religious leaders of all kinds, Pharisees, scribes, you name it, are constantly arguing with Jesus over his criticism, his direct criticism of the Mosaic Law. Uh, they also criticize him over his politics. So, uh, for example, they challenge him uh, with, should we pay our taxes? And that's when he delivers his famous render unto Caesar's line. So it is both on a political level and a religious level that religious, the Jewish religious leaders of all sorts are arguing with Jesus. Now, after the betrayal of Judas, one of Jesus' own, the Sanhedrin has him arrested, uh, and in a kangaroo court convicts him not of violating Roman law, but of Mosaic law. And at the time, the Jews could have had him executed, but they would have that stoning would have been the appropriate punishment under the Mosaic law, and they could have and did stone violators of the Mosaic law. So the passion narrative is fiction because they claim they'll need Pilate to uh, deliver the final death sentence. So they take him to Pilate, and in all four Gospels, Pilate declares Jesus point-blank innocent. He cannot understand the religious charges. Jesus obviously advocates peace and paying your taxes. He's begging Jesus to make a defense. He's trying all kinds of means other than crucifixion, but it's the Jewish crowd, not just once, not just twice, but three times, and apparently in unison, demanding Jesus' crucifixion that finally gets Pilate to relent. So it's the Jewish crowd uh, that is really, that are, along with Judas and the Jewish religious leadership, who all three are clearly the, given the blame for Jesus' death. Pilate finally relents. He may have a violent disturbance in Jerusalem if he doesn't do it. This is, brings out a basin and almost like a political cartoon in a melodramatic way washes his hands of the guilt. Now, in recent couple, the last couple of centuries, Pilate has been seen as the heavy, but I think that's the result of uh, Christian guilt over anti-Semitism, well-earned Christian guilt over anti-Semitism. Uh, the fact is that throughout the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, when passion play narratives were uh, performed, it would always cause violence against the Jewish population. Yeah, just horrible. Right, whereas the Roman Empire was regarded as a holy and venerable institution by Romans until the Napoleonic Wars in the early 19th century. So the Roman Empire was viewed in a positive way by Christians for nearly its entire history, whereas Jews were universally condemned as the killers of Jesus. In fact, the Pope, only in the 20th century, officially forgave the Jews for killing Jesus. No, in wow. fact, anti-Semitism has its roots in the New Testament, and for political reasons. So, uh, in fact, I see no other way of interpreting the Passion story shared in all four Gospels, except as pro-Roman political propaganda. It is clearly fiction, 
We, there was no eyewitness accounts of the trial. There are fictional, obviously fictional and unhistorical elements to the story. It's really just designed to blame the Jews for killing Jesus and thus justify the Roman war and defeat. Well, I think you're right, the theory you give in the book, which is that the Christians were stuck with the fact, or at least the tradition, that the Romans had killed Jesus. And so they had to come up with a way to exonerate the Romans and blame the Jews, even though the Romans are actually the ones pounding in the nails. There's two ways of looking at that. There's two ways of looking at that. Many, I'm not, we don't take a stand on whether there was a historical Jesus. We, if the first thing we need to do is say, and what I wish a lot of scholars of ancient history would do more frequently is say, I don't know. And the truth of the matter is that when it comes to a historical Jesus, the, it is such a vexed question, and there are so many good theories on both sides that we simply avoid the topic. And it's really a relatively unimportant topic. Uh, the, the Jesus of the New Testament, on the other hand, he is the Jesus that influenced history, and he can be dissected. His theological and political motives can be understood, and those are kind of inescapable in my view. Well, as a side note, I know Bart Ehrman does have a book out arguing that the historical Jesus did exist. Right. I haven't read the book, and so I think he's probably right, but like as you say, it's... Well, that's it's just an argument from authority, isn't it, Ari? You're accepting the authority of, of the great Bart Ehrman. Bart, well... <laughs> Bart, Bart, Bart Ehrman is a great authority, but his argument here is weak. Even he acknowledges that if there was a historical Jesus, he had to be Torah Orthodox. We know that Paul was the innovator there. Otherwise, Paul would not be arguing as he does with the existing. In, in, for example, in his letter to the Galatians, Paul condemns all previous Christians, all previous apostles, allegedly the apostles who might have known Jesus, for being wrong about the Mosaic law, for being wrong about the nature of Jesus. So uh, it, that and other evidence uh, highly suggests that all the Christians, so-called Christians, before Paul were Torah Orthodox. This, of course, would make a hash out of the Gospels presentation of Jesus, where Jesus appears to be a Pauline critic of the Mosaic Law. Oh, I'm totally convinced that the historical Jesus would have had very, very different ideas than the Jesus of the Gospels. And Bart Ehrman can't can't quite separate himself from this uh, notion of some idealistic otherworldly preacher in the hills of Galilee. Uh, if Jesus was crucified by the Romans, and if there was a historical Jesus, that may be the only fact that we can know with any certainty. Uh, because even Bart Ehrman admits 80-85% of the New Testament is historical rubbish. Even he admits that 85% uh, of the things Jesus is quoted as saying could not have been spoken by a historical Jesus. So if we're, we recognize that the vast majority of the Gospels uh, is fiction, just as Ehrman does, uh, I don't see any reason to believe that a crucified Jesus was crucified for being a pacifist. No, the Jews would have stoned him for that purpose, the Romans, if they crucified someone named Jesus, would have crucified him because he was a rebel, an advocate of violence. Uh, they would not have advocated someone who advocated peace with Rome, someone who befriended tax collectors and centurions, so someone who said, turn the other cheek and blessed are the peacemakers and go the extra mile for Rome. Uh, no, the Romans would have given that guy a platform. <laughs> they wouldn't have crucified him. So if there was a Jesus who was crucified, he was crucified for being a political rebel. And by the logic of many scholars today, he would have been Torah Orthodox. So what, what Ehrman needs to do is let go of uh, the remaining uh, Jesus that he has there from the Gospels. I don't mean to say there was no historical Jesus. 
It's just that if there was a historical Jesus, he was simply one of the thousands of Jewish rebels who were crucified in the first century. I'll agree. I, I but he agree had to that. be a pretty empty vessel if there was such a Jesus, so they could attach all this fiction to him. Because apparently within a century of his life, 80% of his obiter dicta is being put into his mouth fraudulently by later Christians. Take, for example, Jesus' famous line, pick up your own cross and follow me. Now, before Jesus had actually been crucified or even executed, it is bizarre to think, well, let's assume that he miraculously predicted the manner of his own death. Would any of his followers have understood it? It would have been gibberish to them. Whereas, uh, pick up your own cross, symbolically, whatever that might be, sounds like we're living in a world where the crucifixion is already understood in an abstract and symbolic way. And well, so, I'm, I'm sure the apologists will have a field day with that kind of thing. Um, as for the Airman book, I'll just defer judgment on some of his points until I just read the book. And then <laughs> That's always a good idea. <laughs> so, I just wanted to get in there that, you know, there is... Right, and I have... And I have tremendous respect for, for Bart Ehrman. He does a magnificent job, like the scholars of the old Jesus Seminar did, of really ripping the historical uh, uh, historicity and the historical reliability of the New Testament to shreds. To shreds. What's also interesting is that the Jesus Seminar and Bart Ehrman agree that only 15 or 20 percent of what Jesus said might even go back to a historical Jesus. Uh, and what I find interesting and powerful for my thesis is that that 15% is the most pro-Roman, anti-Torah stuff. So the stuff that Bart Ehrman and the Jesus Seminar regard as the most authentic to Jesus is actually the most anti-Torah and pro-Roman material Jesus utters in the Gospels. Hmm. I mean, you know, there's... I think Ehrman also believes that even Mark was based on previous sources. Well, there's, so I no, guess ultimately... there's no question that Mark was not an eyewitness account. What's interesting is scholars have conclusively shown that both Matthew and Luke, for example, used Mark as a previous source. And they used another source, which is no longer available to us, which scholars have identified as the Q source, material also shared by Matthew and Luke that isn't shared by Mark. Mm. Um, but And Mark itself, what's interesting, is primarily based, for example, on Hebrew scriptures. Instead of mining a recent biography or memories of this recent guy named Jesus, they mine he, you know, centuries-old Hebrew scriptures for detailed facts about Jesus' life, almost verbatim and linguistically. Uh, so the narrative structure of, of, of the Gospels is also uh, fiction, demonstrably historical fiction. Not just the miracles, not just the really, uh, you know, implausible stuff, but basic descriptions are lifted almost verbatim from the Old Testament uh, about the life of Jesus in the first century. Well, that's because they prophesied him, you know. <laughs> right. So, well, I want to transition now to what is closer to the core of your book, which is the Flavian emperors. So, and this goes back to the Jewish-Roman War. So describe for us and for our listeners the the background of Vespasian and his son Titus. Okay. The Roman Republic had in the first century BC broken down. A series of civil wars uh, changed the Roman constitution from being an oligarchic republic uh, ruled by certain aristocratic families in the city of Rome into a monarchy, an empire. 
And the first emperor, Augustus, uh, did some religious innovations to support that, including uh, the development of an imperial cult. His own adopted father, the dictator uh, Julius Caesar, was turned into a god, a god of mercy and love and compassion. And it was the cult of this uh, divine man that became the basis for uh, the imperial, the famous imperial cults, which turned popular Roman empire emperors into gods that joined the Roman pantheon. And as you point out, this wasn't just like a proclamation in the Senate. People took this seriously. There were Very. priests. People actually literally worshipped oh, yeah. the, uh, Caesar. Well, when such? Julius Caesar was martyred by a Senate for claiming to be a king, just like Jesus, <laughs> after he'd shown compassion to his enemies and loved his enemies, just like Jesus, uh, 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 the death of Julius Caesar caused such trauma in Rome that the ordinary people who loved Julius Caesar, and the emperors, by the way, I mean, modern Hollywood gives us a very deceptive view. The Roman emperors were extremely popular, and it was the Senate that was very unpopular among the masses of Rome. But the people so loved Julius Caesar that they built a makeshift shrine to him even before the Senate officially deified uh, Julius Caesar and built an official temple to him. So the ordinary people sincerely worshipped Julius Caesar is a god, and I believe sincerely worshipped other emperors like Augustus and later Vespasian. Now, these Flavian emperors that you mentioned, they're the second dynasty after the Julio-Claudian dynasty of Julius Caesar and Augustus, the last of whom was the uh, tyrant Nero. And it was during Nero's uh, disastrous reign uh, that the Jewish war broke out. Nero was probably the guy who hired Paul to start this undermining effort of the Jewish rebels, this ideological counter-movement to sort of pacify uh, the, the rebels. And Paul was probably sent in as a Roman agent for that purpose. Um, no, that, that's the, the controversy. Now we're getting into the controversial bit. So. Well, it is, because, but uh, there is a wonderful book that I highly recommend called Operation Messiah, which again came out after our own theses, which sort of demonstrates that Roman agents were constantly, and governors and, and uh, judicial officials, were constantly defending Paul against Jewish Orthodox crowds. And Paul, in his own letter to the Philippians, for example, brags about the freedom and access that he has in Rome, able to convert the entire Praetorian Guard and able to preach the gospel freely in Rome. Now, if Paul had actually been arrested for being a political uh, problem or disturbance, it's impossible for me to think that the Romans would give him a platform, much less some, such access. Um, his contacts apparently go all the way up to Caesar's household. Paul boasts about that by saying, greetings from all those in Caesar's household. He apparently is connected to a person named Epaphroditus, who is one of the leading servants of the emperor Nero. Um, so he had very close connections with high-ranking Romans who treated him very well in Rome. And his own history shows that Roman governors were constantly protecting him, which highly suggests that, Rome was at, that Paul was actually working as a Roman agent and continuously being protected by them throughout his mission. Now, the, that mission was a pretty vague one still. It didn't have Jesus tied down in a biographical way. The Gospels and most of the rest of the New Testament were written in the Flavian era or shortly thereafter. What makes this new second dynasty of emperors interesting is that they were appointed by Nero to deal with the Jewish war. Vespasian was uh, a humble, a guy from humble origins, uh, very much like Jesus in, in a way, 
but and he was in fact given power over so much of the Roman army precisely because he wasn't considered a political threat to Nero. But when Nero himself faced a crisis and was forced into suicide, that sort of opened up the, the imperial throne to a civil war and many ca candidates of whom Vespasian, because he had this huge army in Judea, was a leading candidate. And because he and his son Titus had been so successful in beating back the Jewish rebellion. Very successful, and therefore they converted their propaganda into featuring their great success against the Jews, which was a huge deal for the Romans. Uh, the Flavians therefore brought peace in two ways to Rome. They brought peace by uh, uh, bringing an end to the Jewish war successfully, and by bringing an end to the civil war that followed the, the suicide of Nero. And so the, these Flavian emperors very much promoted the ideology of peace, internationalism. They built a temple to peace. They featured it on their coins. Their coins would feature, for example, terms like peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Ver the very ideas we hear echoed in the New Testament in the Gospels. The very ideology of Roman propaganda, whether we find it in texts for the Flavians, and their altruism, and their love, and how their divinity is based on their love for humanity, and their altruistic love for humanity, we see echoed concordia, harmonia, you know, uh, clementia, mercy, compassion, are echoed on Roman coinage as well as Roman text, uh, and echoed perfectly in the New Testament, um, down to the language, down to the language. So when these Flavian emperors defeated the Jews and launched their bid for empire, which was successful, when they became emperors, they featured their humble origins overtly in their propaganda. They featured their bringing of peace overtly in their propaganda. They featured the fact that they claimed to be the true Jewish Messiah. And you say, well, how does that work? How does a Roman emperor claim to be the true? Well, and that's according to two historians, right? No, it's according to many historians, the pagan historians Suetonius and Tacitus, who were pagan Romans writing in the early 2nd century, both of them state point blank that they were the messiahs. They have no doubt. They didn't just say the Flavians claimed this. These Roman uh, authors said the Flavian emperors Vespasian and his son were, in fact, the true messiah, and the Jews misunderstood the nature of their messiah. We also have contemporary Jewish writers, not just Flavius Josephus, who worked for the Flavians as a propagandist, but also Rabbi Yohanan ben Zakkai, uh, the great founder of the rabbinic movement at Yavna, one of the earliest, earliest features, uh, uh, figures in the history of Talmudic thought. And he himself recognized, probably just for political reasons and with a, basically to a sword to his throat, uh, that, that Vespasian was the true Messiah. So we have both uh, Jewish leaders and pagan leaders of the era absolutely convinced and arguing to everyone that in fact the Flavians were the true messiahs. Because guess what? They did come to world rule from Judea. And so yeah, they, they, they were therefore more traditionally they messianic than Jesus was. But you see, there's something paradoxical about Jesus claiming to be Messiah and a peace lover, isn't there? That reverses the traditional Jewish accept, uh, conception of what a Messiah is. But with the Flavians, we see a perfect parallel with Jesus. They're both God-men unlike any Jewish Messiah before, and they're bringers of peace, as well as, well as having humble origins, as well as the fact that Vespasian, for example, performs healing miracles identical to those described by Jesus uh, as being performed by Jesus in the Gospels. 
and they were written about the same time as the Gospels. Jesus, for example, cures a blind man with his spittle and mud. Just to take one example, there are some others. Uh, just at the very same time, in fact, he beats Jesus to it, <laughs> to it because that happened before the Gospels were written. So what's interesting is that the Flavians share enormous, an enormous number of parallels with the Jesus of the Gospels that are radically different than any conception of Jewish Messiah before. They're godmen. They're peace lovers instead of warriors. Um, they are uh, open to paganism. And um, they boast of their humble origins. They perform similar miracles. And biographically, uh, Vespasian's son Titus, who went on to become emperor after Vespasian, uh, himself curiously par parallels Jesus in very many ways. He descends from Galilee, where he cast out demons, if you will, on the shore of, uh, of Galilee. He, he descends uh, to uh, Jerusalem, has a triumphal entry into Jerusalem after camping out in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then when he enters Jerusalem, he destroys the temple, very interestingly paralleling Jesus' own attack on the temple. You'll recall that Jesus attacked the money changers and therefore the whole Jewish purity code as a bunch of thieves, just as the Romans would see this money changing as a thievery operation, morally justifying the Roman attack to come and physically commencing it. So Paul, so, so Titus descends from Galilee, uh, has a tri camps out in Gethsemane, has a triumphal entry to Jerusalem, and fulfills Jesus' own prophecy of the temple's destruction by destroying the temple, something Jesus morally justified and actually physically commenced. Um, in my mind, there's very little doubt that the New Testament can only be seen as Roman propaganda, and in fact as sort of a prophetic proof text for the Flavian claims to being Messiah. Jesus predicts that his second, glorious second, this is something most Christians today ignore completely, but in the three synoptic Gospels, in multiple places, Jesus predicts that his glorious second coming will happen within the lifetime of people listening to him, and that it will be associated with the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. Given that timing, and given the parallels between the Flavians and Jesus, in the first century, the Gospels could only have been read one way, as demonstrations of the Flavian claims to being Messiah. It can only be ever, could only have been read that way, in fact. Anyone in the first century reading the Gospels, when the Gospels were written, would have seen all of the Flavian parallels, because they were the rulers of the world at that time. They would have seen the parallels, their humble origins, their advocacy of peace, their God-men plus claim to being peaceful messiahs, paradoxically. All of that would have been seen as a direct proof and parallel that Jesus was sort of a prophetic precursor to the Flavian messiahs, who did come to rule the world from Judea, you see. And right. their okay, cult, so... and their cult as gods, featured that claim, even as the Gospels were being written. Right, okay. So Furthermore, here's, here's the very symbols like that were first found for Jesus in the earliest catacombs are very earliest evidence for Christianity, visually. Happens to use the very same symbol for Jesus for at least two centuries, rather than the cross. But a lot of Christians don't know this either. Rather than the cross, this anchor and fish symbol was by far more commonly used as a symbolic reference for Jesus in our earliest, earliest images of Jesus in the earliest Christian archaeology in the first catacombs. Now, that image was also an image exclusively associated with one emperor, Titus. 
And so the and very image you do some original research, you found some you found some imagery on this that that helps push your thesis here. Exactly. So, so the so the coins jingling in people's pockets at the very time Christians are using this symbol to represent Jesus show that Titus is associated with the same image. So on one side of the coin you'll see Titus the emperor his his, his picture on the other side you'll see this this uh, anchor and fish image which Christians adopted as the symbol for Jesus while those coins were still jingling in their pockets. So no one in the early Christian movement could have avoided seeing the connection between the Flavians and Jesus. And the evidence for this goes back to the very first images that symbolically represented Jesus in the first catacombs. And that's a good finding. Congratulations for digging that up. I see no other way, no other plausible explanation other than Roman involvement of some sort. I mean, it's clear that the New Testament represents a critical reaction to the militant, nationalist, Torah-Orthodox, messianic rebels of the first two centuries. Christianity is the opposite of all that. So indeed, it must represent a critical reaction. And in that sense, it, it is Roman propaganda in a world where there's no separation between religion and politics and would only be seen as Roman propaganda. If, a, if Roman fingerprints aren't on the passion narrative or the praise of the centurion or render unto Caesar or the, the entire parable that Jesus' life comes out to be as a prophetic precursor to the Flavians, um, to put all that together, there is no, in my view, no alternative plausible explanation. Like an inductive experiment, you see, we've controlled for the other variables. And unless there is a, uh, an explanation that can thread those needles all at the same time, I see no other way of understanding it except, in effect, as Roman propaganda aimed at those rebels. Not at a general audience, as I say. That only came later under Constantine. Well, it slowly over a period before Constantine. But by the time of Constantine, Christianity had, had become so successful uh, that it could take, and, it's, and it was already so pro-Roman, that it could easily be adopted as the official religion. But originally, back in the first century, in the early second century, it was targeted to a very specific audience. Okay. I have a point of pushback. But first, do you sure. want to just take a minute to explain how, how you found this coin imagery? Because I wasn't like, how, how, did you, how did that actually come about with the uh, coin of Titus and the fish and anchor on the back? Well, my co-author from the very beginning, when I noted the relationship between the Flavian messianic claims and the what appears to be Roman propaganda throughout the New Testament, and putting that all together, uh, my co-author from the very beginning said, we are going to find physical evidence that connects the two. I was a little skeptical precisely because Roman coinage, uh, for example, and most Roman religious imagery was designed for an empire-wide general audience. And I didn't think that specific propaganda could so tie the Flavians that way. So I was a bit skeptical. Nonetheless, I was busy writing a monograph on Roman propaganda and its connection to the New Testament and using Roman coinage, for example, of the first century. You know, peace on earth, uh, eternus, uh, compassion, concordia, harmonia, all those pro-Christian concepts that you find in Roman, prop prop Roman propaganda in the New Testament. As I was looking into Roman coinage for that purpose, my co-author simply by going through a catalog of every single image used on every single Roman coin, 
uh, said paper catalog or was it online? Online. It was, God bless the, excuse the, forgive forgive the term, but God bless the internet because it finally gave us a comprehensive visual catalog of nearly every ancient Roman coin type, even provincial Roman coin types. Um, And it was that that led us to realize that the image used for Jesus by Christians was basically used by one and only one Roman emperor, an emperor who claimed to be a Jewish Messiah too, within the same period that the Gospels were being written. So that was a mind-blowing discovery on his part, which dramatically added to my monograph on Roman coinage and propaganda for obvious reasons. And it was at that point that we realized, that's it. We have to tell the world about our findings. Various other scholars had made, since, as I say, the early 80s, there's been a sort of revolution uh, other scholars have said things quite close to what we've said, but not quite what we've said. And uh, we wanted to come out with our version because they say some radical things that are not consistent with historical scholarship in many cases. Uh, Professor Eisenman, for example, whose work we very much admire, uh, disagrees with the standard dating of the Dead Sea Scrolls. We don't believe that's necessary. We stick to the standard dates. Joseph Atwell, uh, for example, believes that all of the Pauline epistles were written at a later date, and none of them were authentic to a pre-70 period. We disagree with that and agree with standard scholarship. Um, So what we wanted to do was get this radical idea back onto a sound uh, footing consistent with uh, the hard findings of standard scholarship, which is what we did. And we wanted to present both the archaeological evidence, which these other guys haven't really done, along with, uh, I think, a, m- a more balanced presentation of the textual evidence. Well, if Warren is listening, congratulations on the coin. That was a that was a nice find. Yes, I would like to I would like to take just a few minutes to do two things: to summarize your essential controversial thesis, because this is going to sound surprising to a lot of people. So I just want to communicate to our listeners yes this you probably haven't heard this before no this is not standard thinking in the area so yes it's different okay so but then i also want to acknowledge the great history you've dug up and reviewed while also still signing a, a note of skepticism on it so here's my summary of what you're doing. You can do more than a note. Hammer me. Come on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you're saying that Christianity in the first century was predominantly an intentional creation of the Roman government in order to counter the rebellious messianic faction of Jews. And this was done in two main episodes. It was done under Nero with Paul who you say was, or at least could have been, a Roman agent, and under the Flavians, Vespasian and his son Titus, who not only claimed to be the Messiah, so in other words, they were essentially Titus was claiming to be Jesus returned, and they were probably directly responsible, well, let's say indirectly responsible for the Gospels, for the writing of the Gospels, which are now in the New Testament, and that they continued this Nero's campaign of creating a a version of Christianity, a a version of new Judaism to replace and subvert the old rebellious, rebellious form of Judaism. Precisely. And so, so here's, so here's my skeptical pushback. I'm convinced of a lot of what you're saying. I'm convinced that Paul knew people in the Roman government. 
was sympathetic to Rome, was very unsympathetic to law-bound, let's say, traditional Judaism, and very much wanted to open up his religion to the world at large, including Romans, pagans, Greeks. And he was also obviously very influenced by Hellenistic thinking. All of this I'm convinced of, but, I, but I'm not sure that that means he was a Roman agent. Maybe he was just sympathetic. In terms of the Flavians... Maybe he was just what? Maybe he was just sympathetic to Roman causes, and he wasn't actually working for them. In other words, he could have been working alongside the Romans, oh, I see. or he well, could have been convenient for okay. the Romans without actually being on the payroll or something. I see what you're saying. I have an answer to that. And then, okay, <laughs> let, let me do a second. Yeah. So, okay, but, are, but I understand your point. Yeah. Okay, so the Flavian part of it, you bring up a lot of history, which I have not heard before. Like the coin using this Christian symbolism, new to me. Vespasian claiming to perform miracles, not only miracles, but the same, some of the same miracles that Jesus performs in the Gospels. The only emperor to actually perform miracles in his earthly life, by the way. What's that? Say, they, say Vespasian that is the only Roman emperor who, has claimed to have, who claimed to have performed miracles in his earthly life. Makes him a unique yeah, so, uh, emperor and man god. So, yeah, Ooh. and that's just that's just fascinating. Um, there, they claim they actually claimed to be the Messiah. Their court historian Josephus said they were the Messiah. And uh, you also have a coin in your book with Titus with the uh, text "Peace on Earth," and you mentioned that, but it's actually on one of his coins, which is many like of his coins because many, many, many of his coins. He issued thousands of such coins, and in a variety of issues, peace was their so, big thing. Yeah, and compassion. Listen to their propaganda, man. They were their divinity is connected with their altruistic love of humanity. And another thing you point out is that when they sacked the temple, they got all of the religious books, and guess who ended up with those? The Flavian's court historian, Josephus. Bingo. Which, interestingly, a lot of that material makes it into the New Testament Gospels. Even if it needs to be misquoted. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Well, you know, it's... (laughs) It's not like the Old Testament says, right? Then there will be a man named Jesus, right. born to a woman named Mary, and he, you know, so but so but so they're kind of twisting it toward toward those ends as prophecy, right? Um, so I'm convinced by your book that there are that they are self consciously creating themselves with parallels to Christianity and to Judaism, and that's just remarkable to me. But I but that doesn't mean that Josephus wrote. The Gospel of Mark, for example, necessarily. Oh, I don't necessarily believe so, that either. So I'm not sure. I'm not quite words, sure not who sure. Josephus was, and I certainly <laughs> don't know the specific names of anyone who wrote the Gospels. And anyone who claims to know the specific authors of the Gospels uh, is uh, telling you a crock. <laughs> okay. But you do raise it as a possibility. I, I raise that whoever wrote the work of, of Josephus may have been part of the cabal who helped, uh, because you see, there were many, many well-educated, philosophical, wealthy, pro-Roman Jews who were cooperating with Rome throughout this conflict against uh, militant Messianic Jews. Um, And those are the people who, however we want to configure it, uh, were probably the people, because they're the ones, people like Josephus, or Titus's many Jewish friends. In fact, he was himself a fiancé of a Jewish princess, uh, and because of political reasons, couldn't marry her. Uh, that's how closely connected the Flavians were with high-ranking intellectual Jews. And it's these intellectual Jews who would have found a 
non-kosher, non-Torah Orthodox form of Judaism very, very convenient. They would be the ones to find a pacifistic pro-Roman form of Judaism very, very convenient. So I believe that it was those Jews, uh, whoever they all were, who in some form or fashion were the main authors because they were experts in Jewish history and law and they wanted to convince as many of their compatriot Jews to go with the Roman program as possible. And it's this close connection between high-ranking Jews who would have found Christianity very, very convenient. See, what happens in Christianity are things which are otherwise really unexplainable, Ari. Uh, Messiah is not an otherworldly concept to most Jews. Messiah is a very this-world concept about political rule here on earth. It is only Christianity that removed the Messiah to another dimension via uh, Platonism. And it is only Christianity that made uh, Jesus into a man-god like Roman emperors. Um, and at the same time, this paradoxically militant concept of Messiah is being fused into this platonic, pro-peace, pro-Rome Jesus. And that is absolutely unique. You'll never find it anywhere else. And that uniqueness is shared by only one other group of people, the Flavian emperors. They too were godmen. They too had a spiritual uh, platonic existence beyond their own. They too were advocates of peace. They too were humble messiahs and the true kings of, of, of the Jews. Combining those paradoxical elements simultaneously in history, uniquely in history for the first time, is no accident. Go further. All the aspects of traditional Judaism, and you can imagine Judaism losing with, in, in its liberal form one bit of kosher lifestyle after another, uh, perhaps in a piecemeal fashion. But what we have in the New Testament is a sweeping, simultaneous eradication of every single thing that makes Judaism distinct. Kosher diet, circumcision, strict Sabbath observance, animal sacrifice, pagan, uh, graven images, right? The symbolic representation of Jesus, the political nature, the earthly nature of Messiah, and what the prophecies of Messiah mean. This man-god is being grafted onto it in an extremely pagan way and a way convenient to Roman emperors. All of that is happening simultaneously, suddenly, and sweepingly in the New Testament in a matter of a few decades. I could imagine a slow evolution of, say, the loss of uh, kosher aspects. And I could imagine Hellenistic Jews, there were, there were Platonic Jewish thinkers like Philo, whose family, by the way, were close friends of the Flavians, <laughs> who were integrating the philosophy of Plato with Jewish thought. I mean, after all, Jewish monotheism was always more consistent with Neoplatonism, you know, the form of the good, the one, than polytheism ever was. So, uh, yeah, I see a natural development that could have occurred but that natural development was disrupted radically at the time of the Jewish war. And in a sweeping, simultaneous, turn it upside down on its head, the concept of Messiah was thoroughly turned on its head. He was turned into an anti-Jewish man-god, friendly in a to the Flavians. And the entire scope of Jewish law was turned on its head all at once. Now, that radical, sudden, sweeping set of innovations happening all at the same time right in the wake, or right before, or right in the wake of the first Jewish war, really can be no accident. It has, there is some direct political causal relationship between the religious war the Jews were fighting against the Romans and uh, the New Testament. 
that I think is impossible to avoid. Jesus would not have praised a centurion's faith as exceeding any Jews. I have not found such faith among any of the sons of Israel. Whoa! Jesus would not have been so pointed as to defend tax collectors and tax collecting. He would not have been so pointed as to defend uh, the consistency of being obedience to both Caesar and God in that political context. They would not have gone out of their way to exonerate Pilate and the Roman government so systematically uh, if it had not been for political motivations in the first century. It's got political uh, implications directly relevant to the Jewish war. And the Gospels are obsessed with that Jewish war. The destruction of the temple, why it was a mistake to rebel, why we should have listened to the pacifist Jesus. It has a direct political... Paul in Romans 13, maybe the oldest portion of the New Testament, obey the Roman state as God's agents on earth, a direct political answer to the rebels. All of that happening simultaneously. Um, there is We've controlled... Let me put it this way. We've done a uh, controlled scientific experiment here, and there really is no plausible alternative. We've, we've provided, I think, the only plausible alternative to several pieces of the evidence and uh, context and history for which there is no reasonable alternative. Maybe this would be a helpful way for me to summarize the point. I would say that there is a strong thesis and an even stronger thesis, a stronger thesis. I was going to say weak and strong, but that weak doesn't quite cover it. The strong thesis is that Christianity obviously had a great deal to do with the destruction of the temple and the politics of Rome at the time. That I think you establish overwhelmingly. Like, I don't think any reasonable person could doubt that that thesis. The stronger thesis is that the Flavian, the Flavian emperors, as Nero before them, were very self-consciously and very actively involved in the creation of this alternative Judaism, this new Christianity. Now, that I'm not. I think that there is less evidence for that very strong thesis. And overwhelming evidence for the slightly less strong thesis. I, I would just ask you, what is the plausible alternative for even the weak thesis other than the first? In other words, I don't believe that some idealistic religious Jew would somehow come out with this systematically politically Roman propaganda on their own. No, no, no. There, there's certainly Hellenistic pro-Roman Jews. Well, don't you think that, that whoever these people like Paul and the gospel authors were would have had the active help of Rome? I mean, just by hearing them. And why would there? And why would they even include politics? Why would an idealistic messianic Jew of the first century, an idealistic Jew of the first century, is is more likely to be Torah Orthodox? Let's say let's say we have a Jew, an idealistic and religious Jew, who happens to be anti-Torah Orthodox and happens to be pro-Roman peace. You mean that accidental conjunction is not going to come to the attention of Rome? And we wouldn't well, see the exact conjunction, right? And so we would see Roman governors protecting Paul, just as the Book of Acts says they did. Okay. So we yeah. would see, okay. for example, members of the Flavian dynasty being a first-century pope. Um, Vespasian's son-in-law. Christian tradition says that Vespasian's son-in-law and cousin was one of the first-century popes, Pope Clement of Rome. We also have the earliest Christian archaeology belongs to Vespasian's granddaughter. Domatilla, the oldest Christian archaeology period, is the gravesite, the original gravesite of Vespasian's granddaughter, who Eusebius, the first Christian historian, identifies as a Christian. So we know uh, that there are Christians in the imperial Flavian family 
Furthermore, we know that uh, their, the earliest Christian archaeology is associated with the Flavians and Flavian images like the anchor and dolphin. We know more than this. The earliest reference to Christianity by pagan historians, the earliest reference to Christianity by pagan historians, refers to the heyday of Christianity as occurring during the Flavian dynasty. Pliny the Younger writes to the Emperor Trajan, what are we to do about these Christians early in the second century? Trajan says, do not hunt them out, seek them out for persecution, which is interesting. All right. Uh, but on the other hand, Pliny describes a period during the heyday of the Flavian dynasty, which he describes as the heyday of Christianity. And a Christianity that affected, quote, all classes of Romans. So all of our evidence really suggests that the original heyday of Christianity was during the Flavian period. Members of the Flavian imperial family are identified by early Christian tradition as first century Christians. Indeed, a Christian pope, the earliest Christian archaeology, is associated with the very family of the Flavians. And there, as I say, it, it is, it, you know, the Romans would have wiped out something they didn't like. But of course, there's nothing in the New Testament for the Romans not to like. It is a systematic pacification and cultural assimilation of not just Jews, but paradoxically Messianic Jews. And that paradox itself requires plausible explanation that only the politics of the first century can explain and only a pro-Roman angle on that can explain sufficiently. Well, from we're going to I'm going to let our listeners examine your book, which is very detailed, many, many notes. I'm going to let them examine that and all the overwhelming evidence that you present, including all of the family history, including all of the uh, ancient historians back to Josephus and many others. And because I think that people will be persuaded by a lot by reading the book, even if they're not persuaded by your every last jot and tittle. Well, thank you very much. Thank and you very so, much. I think we have, I think a hundred years from now, it will be the consensus view. I think the evidence has, we have controlled in our scientific experiment, if you will, all the factors. There is no plausible explanation for any one of, say, a half a dozen factors other than Roman involvement, uh, at least Roman support and involvement uh, in it. I mean, uh, the idea that the Romans would not have actively promoted uh, such a pro-Roman uh, ideology right in the midst of this con I religious ideological conflict with the Jews, one that so sweepingly alters Judaism in a simultaneous and sudden and dramatically pro-Roman way, is really hard to explain by any other means in an age when politics and religion were one. Well, that has been fascinating, and it will be fascinating to see how the discussion continues on from here. Mm-hmm. Our guest today has been James Valiant, author of Creating Christ, How Roman Emperors Invented Christianity. Thank you for being with us, James. Well, thank you very much. This was a great pleasure. And thank you for letting me go on about it for a while. This was really fun. We should do this again. Yeah, I, I love that. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. This has been the Self in Society, Self in Society podcast, and we will see you next time. Thank you.